Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack, or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Season 4, Episode 8, The Last Sovereignty Goddess. This final story of this season of Not Work Storytelling is one that I've written. And I've invited a many times guest to the podcast, Laura Murphy, to sit and discuss it with me. I hope you know Laura from the stories she's told already at Not Work. The stories of the goddesses Bowen, Bridget, and Danu. Laura Murphy is a poet, activist, and healer from Ireland, whose work centers around the ancient Irish poetic practice of Imbus Ferocni. She is a true soul sister, and I'm so grateful to have Laura with me as I weave this new story. In this episode, we dive into big, difficult topics of the day, as well as the ancient story of the sovereignty goddess. And it seems fitting before we start for me to tell you about an offering from another dear friend and soul sister, Melinda Laus. You would have heard Melinda in an earlier season of the podcast when I sat and told the Deirdre story. And she talked with me through the great sorrows and grief that come up when we explore such a tale. Melinda is currently offering a new program called Seasons for Healing. It's a grief support community that blends the healing power of nature with wise and inspired grief education. Grief is everywhere these days. Those of us who are experiencing collective grief as well as the personal loss of someone we love, we need each other. Seasons for Healing is a beautiful community of like-hearted grievers who connect around the healing power of togetherness and the sacredness of nature. I invite you to visit thenatureofgrief.com to learn more and to register. I am so grateful to have Laura Murphy back with me on the show for the fourth time. And we're going to do it a little differently this time in that she is going to sit with me for a story that I have called through. And it's a story I call The Last Sovereignty Goddess. So as is our way at Notwork Storytelling, first we'll let the story speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways it still resonates and matters. Then, on the eve of Samhain precisely, Mungin dies. So this is the death of Mungin the Banshee. Hence, Samhain is called by the rabble Mungin's Feast for she was a witch and had magical power while she was in the flesh. Wherefore, women and the rabble make petitions to her on Samhain. That is how the story ends. It's time you know how the story 
began. My name is Mungin, and if I am remembered, my name is tangled in lies of intrigue, deceit, and murder. In fact, my story is one of origins, union, and mystery. There are truths here, but let it be said that this is a story that emerged from the imaginal realm. Mythic truths emerge in many shapes across time. First, you must know this. When the call comes, you do not refuse it. I was raised for this sacred work. All of my sisters, all of us Ani and Danu, daughters of Danu, were raised to cross the veil and weave the worlds together. We dwelt in the vault beneath the twin mountains of Mother Danu's breasts. Our home was the womb space beneath the surface where the sun never penetrates, yet the night sky always shines. We were creatures of deepest earth. From the very beginning, we lived amongst the stars. But, of course, we were made of the stuff of stars. There was a sacred sort of routine, albeit an unpredictable one. One of the sisters was called forth when a true king died, and the land cried out for a new ruler. The land herself had needs, and she needed a man who possessed the gift of Furflachman, the truth of the heart. The man would love the land and serve as the land's beloved. This man would be king, and he would be the protector and sovereign who would tend to her sacred body, feed her cherished people and promise balance in the herds, the groves, and amongst all wild things. The chosen sister would emerge from our mountain to attend to her duty. Sometimes all the people, everyone in the tribe, the Tua, would gather for the Banish Rigi, the sacred marriage and the blessing of the king. But it all depended on the daughter of Danu to pass the cup and welcome the new ruler into her own sacred body. As we had been taught, the sister would take on all the power and magic of the goddess of sovereignty herself. She would anoint the worthy one with the mother's own kiss and hold him with her own arms and thighs. Forever leaving our otherworldly home in the belly of the mountain, she would devote herself to this man and his tua. She surrendered her divinity to the whole beautiful, desperate, fragile enterprise of humanity. Though we would never get over the homesickness for the sisterhood, we never begrudged this work that took us from them. We missed our mountain with its holy shadow ceiling that hung with the heavens. But we learned to bloom beneath the changing skies that only offered us the fire of the stars for half of each turn of the earth for half of each day. We were here to learn the ways of the sun, and we accepted its warmth and its harsh light in equal measure. Sometimes the union of goddess and king was a great communal festival. Sometimes there was simply a woman, a man, and a single sip of water. When I was called, I was called to the well. Now, they don't just set a sovereignty goddess in a clearing and pass the could-be king a map to find her, you know. There's wayfinding to be done and tests to be administered before an earthly queen is crowned. 
sacred daughters of Danu are formless mountain spirits until they are born to your world and take the dry, bent form of the holy crone. Yes, we age in reverse. But that is the least of the mysteries of this tale, don't you think? I took my first newborn earthly breath through cracked, creased lips, wind whistling through teeth broken by a lifetime of gnawing bones from every steer I had never eaten. My skeleton ached as I felt the weight of age like a crush of a hammer on Bridget's anvil. But sure, I just thought this was what all humanity had to bear. I was but an infant Kalyak, and I had unspeakable miles to walk before I'd reach that blessed well to meet my prince. Since the dawn of sacred time, I had lived in the belly of the land, but I'd never walked the green fields or wrapped my arms around a mighty oak. And a queen-to-be must know her land as well as she knows her own flesh. I moved this new and ancient body of mine on swollen feet and felt an unaccustomed thing, sweat trickling between my own drooping breasts. The sun, when it shone, burned my crooked nose. I felt the cold rain on my own hard head, those sparse gray hairs of mine not enough to keep me dry. It was a long, long road, walking those rocky places where the limestone and sandstone and siltstone spines of Mother Ireland shone through. I loved those hard gray places most of all, but I could not stay and make my home amongst the stones. Not yet. But oh, as I walked, I missed the mountain womb cave. I knew I was not here to stay in my native elements of fire and stone. I needed to pick up a cup of water for a man who breathed the breath of a king. I reached the grove with its deep, deep well at the heart of the dense, dense wood. And I waited. It took time, but such is the nature of a Kalyak woman born of fire from the heart of stone. And in time, he came. There's a sense that the sovereignty goddess is changed with the choosing of the king. We'd hear tell of some of the sisters selecting a partner from amongst a crowd of ardent suitors and vying warriors. I had no interest in such games. When a single man came into my grove and seemed quite sure of his right to be there, I trusted that his own journey to my side was sign of his worthiness. I was so relieved he'd finally come as I'd grown lonesome here all by myself beneath the changing sky. I was sure he'd proven himself if he'd gotten this far. I was sure I could see in him the truth of his kingly heart. Only later would I doubt myself. Only later would I curse my own divine youth, callow and untested. Only later would I wonder if it was loneliness and impatience that drove me into his arms. Remember, beyond my appearance, I was a newborn babe who knew nothing of a man's guile and the way his eyes can shine when he sees what he wants. I knew nothing of the machinations of statecraft, and I did not yet even possess a human heart. I was raised to speak the language of the stars. I sought not power 
but divine union. My bedtime stories in what you might call goddess school in the mother mountain womb were of imbus and dawn, inspiration and poetry. If I could go back now, I would have a chat with the matron about updating the curriculum and giving the sovereign's bride a few more real-world skills. But how could she have known? How could any of us? We didn't realize how a marriage of the two worlds had been built on a cracked foundation. We didn't realize how greed could stretch across lifetimes and that mankind would someday have the hubris to change the rules. We just knew that our mother island could survive anything for the lifetime of one human man. After all, she always had. And so I followed my otherworldly instincts, and with honor and devotion, I gave the gifts of my divine world to the world of the mortal. With a voice I'd never used, my walk across Eru had been a solitary one. I told the young man with his sea-gray eyes and fine dun-colored hair that he could have his sip of water and his seat of kingship if first he would prove himself worthy and give me my due. This was ritual theater with only the eyes of the trees and the ears of the earth as audience. My sisters and the man's ancestors had engaged in the scripted secret dance since men had first set foot on this land. It always seemed a strange custom to me. And it was even as I acted in the play, feeling a million leagues away from my frail, cold body as that great hulk of a man came close. But still, it had something of the oldest magic about it. Some other time, I will tell you of the sons of Mill and that man they called the poet Amergan, who first approached my many times great aunties, Banva, Fola, and Eru, and flirted and flattered himself into a deal that set men on their thrones and sent us, the two a day, to the belly beneath the mountain breasts of Mama Danu. Of course, that story had its share of betrayal and battle, but now is not the day. We are here to remember my story, and my name. Yoki took the deal, though he didn't offer his name or ask me mine until much later. He pressed his thirst-dried lips to my own age-dried mouth. I was breathless from the great broad warmth of him. I felt my own sinews rub against my bones and felt what it must be to be swallowed by flesh and wanting. His wanting. His lust made certain by his trust in the lore that told him what awaited on the other side of this stomach-curdling first kiss. I felt myself grow smaller and smaller in his grip, all my fire and stars dissolving in his wet mouth and hot breath. But then, there was a shift. A green gold shoot of all the promises of all our shared beliefs that were rooted into the very moment when his ancestors met mine. He knew his kiss was the magic that would release my magic. All golden hair and grass green eyes, all swan white skin and firm breasts, all rosebud mouth pulled from the wicked crone's maw. 
by meeting the wasted sovereignty goddess and taking her as she was, he was taking the sovereignty into himself, but only so he could return it to me. With that kiss, he was making me anew, passing back the power and the knowledge I'd conveyed to him. And so I hoped, I expected, we'd be locked in this cycle, sharing wisdom, love, and power forever. All queen, all king, all hail the queen who made the king, who was made by the king. The king is born, the king-making queen is born. Ri, Banrian, Banishrigi, Ruga on Ri, Ruga on Banrian. Yes, yes, yes. And both our hearts were going like mad. And I said yes. I took on his knowledge and his power, and I found my own new sense of sovereignty beating in a chest that suddenly held an unscarred human heart, aged backwards from otherworldly wisdom to a new queen's magic and might. I could now see a man with wise enough eyes, a sure enough grip, a kind enough mouth. At that moment, as I threaded ungnarled fingers through his thick beard, I thought, all that enoughness was enough. Only later would I see. He would hold the throne and keep the peace. The herds would grow, the bellies would fill. But at a price. This man's price was women and slaves. And I would not have the power to free our lives of either. I loved him true, despite these flaws. He loved our land with his whole being, and he reached to me around these flaws, around the great gulf that would always sit at the core of our true union. And it would be enough, for his lifetime at least. But then, oh, there were those cracks in the bedrock. I don't like to think it came from me or my star-seed cavern home, though our mountain was riddled with all sorts of caves and crevices and sacred voids that would make you think twice about the solidity of earth and stone. The stories they'd tell would surely cast me as a holy terror in my own right. They said I was jealous and power-hungry. That wasn't it, but surely I made some disastrous misstep. Was my crime not being discerning enough? Not taking upon myself the power of choice? Was I supposed to wait for other possible sovereigns to enter my grove? Was I too innocent and sure that any man who came to me with a tender touch would be a creature of pure love? It may have been bigger than me altogether, though. A long, slow erosion of our balance. The daughters of Danu and the sons of men. Our arrangement, where they had dominion over every plain, seashore, peak, and riverbed, while we were exiled to our realm beneath mountain and mound? Reciprocity, living with our own share of creation threads, clutched in the hand, woven in equal measure, fitchafuicha. Sadly, that was no longer the way it worked after all those centuries of kingmaking and power brokering. And so, I was the last sovereignty goddess that Ireland ever knew. And my name, Mungin, has been all but forgotten. Sure, if you know my name at all, you'll know me as the evil stepmother type. 
as the nasty from noble Nile's tale. You'll hear how my stepson met the hag at the well and how he'd swept her into his arms to become sovereign of sovereigns, ensuring his inale dynasty a seat at the head of the table for centuries. Now, I've already spun that whole story for those who would care to hear the truth of it all. With all of its he said, she said, he cheated and she poured the poison glory. I will not waste what breath I have to tell you the tale of what was not my own defeat, but the defeat of the entire balance of the children of the goddess and the children of men, the sacred balance of love and power between the worlds. For this story, it is enough to say that the shape-shifting hag at the well, the one they say that Nile kissed, it's enough to say that she was mere invention. She was a finely crafted piece of propaganda invented by the cleverest political minds of the time. Niall and my sons never met anyone at the well. But Niall did listen carefully to his father's stories and how his kingship and our courtship were so divinely aligned. Stories are powerful, remember. I think you like to celebrate the transformative power of story in your time. But never forget, it's a rare sort of power that is exercised with pure intentions. It's a rare sort of story that isn't told to shape the reality of the moment. Once more, I'll repeat the story they tell. Then on the eve of Samhain precisely, Mungin dies. So this is the death of Mungin the Banshee. Hence, Samhain is called by the rabble Mungin's Feast, for she was a witch and had magical power while she was in the flesh. Wherefore, women and the rabble make petitions to her on Samhain. Here's how I would have you understand my epitaph. Do remember me as you pass through the Samhain portal. When you stand in the liminal space between the harvest of the autumn equinox and the moment of the light's return at the winter solstice. This is the moment when I, a banshee, not a harbinger of death, but a woman of the she, could return to my mother Danu's womb beneath the breasted mountains. And do remember that those who have been labeled witch are, so often, just following the call of their own destiny, doing the divine work of keeping together body and soul and keeping the worlds in balance. Be you a woman or a member of the rabble, one of the ordinary folk, those who live close to the earth and close to the mother, remember me. Remember with me. Have the courage to see we live in the times of tilted scales the sacred balance destroyed by corrupted counselors and self-serving kingmakers, by those who think we live by man's laws and whims alone. But even more important, remember what came before and could come again, the divine union of the seen and unseen, the infinite dance between the realm of spirit and the gorgeous riot of every created thing. Wow. Mm. 
I have the same uh, problem as you've had <laughs> multiple times with mine. I feel like words would be empty at this stage, but words are needed. We're on a podcast. I just want to say thank you. Um, it feels like you've released something that's been in captivity and hidden and suppressed from humanity for ions. And the feeling I have in my body right now is a deep sense of relief and a significant opening in my mind. It's an expansion in my mind and in my awareness and in my heart because you've taken the perspective of probably of one of, of the most important figures of our mythology and our wisdom tradition and looked at her through the aperture of human frailty and given her permission to be imperfect and to explore what can happen when in following our destiny, sometimes that destiny may entail a lapse in wisdom or a lapse in discernment. And in a world that so often glamorizes perfection or else really looks down on imperfection, to actually get the story across that a goddess, the sovereignty goddess of Ireland, who was charged with choosing the ruler and the king, that as wise, as divine as she is, she still has her imperfections that ultimately impact the world. And it's a beautiful analogy for our human embodiments. And in the, the world as it stands at this precipice, when we have world war looming, as we have all the atrocities that are unfolding in the Middle East, I think the birth of this story at this time and all its messages around power versus balance and losing the balance, losing wisdom, not understanding the divine feminine, not understanding the importance of the balance of the feminine and masculine. I just think its birth at this time is a bam. And I'm really grateful for that. Oh, thank you, Laura, for that reflection and for the holding so that this story could come through in this moment as I recite it to you. But also, as all of our stories are, they're a long, long time coming. There across the time it takes to put the pen to page and the editing. But of course, it's the lifetime we've lived to get the story to this point and the lifetimes before. And knowing you as a storyteller over the last couple of years has shifted the way I've been able to show up and tell stories. So, you know, thank you for the over the months and over the years and over the lifetimes, I would say, of holding so that this could be birthed. So thank you for that. And I really appreciate as you're really sitting with the sense of, of the frailties that are inherent in the divinity and that way of how, as you use, I love the word aperture in this sense, and 
it helps me recognize the degree to which my vision of the divine is always through a very rooted in the ground, humble gaze in the sense of humble being hummus and of the earth. Pretty sure that my um, so my graduate thesis at UCD was dethroning the goddess and crowning the woman. And I had never really put that together that I've actually been telling a version of this story mm-hmm. for decades because that's actually at the core of my fascination with mythology and the divine feminine is the way in which they're always our interplay as our deeply flawed human selves in relation to them. So thank you for reminding me of what my very story, my life story is about. I have goosebumps, <laughs> you know, because that's, <laughs> that's been the way I've lived my life for the last maybe 10 years is embodying what I know of the goddesses or or inviting the mystery of the goddesses into my embodied life and, and to work from that place. And if we see the mythology, if we see the characters in our mythology as archetypes and as aspects of our collective unconscious, there's huge energy that can come and huge knowledge and huge wisdom, even if at first we can't put words on it. It comes first as an embodied felt experience. But this story, that was probably my most visceral sense in listening to that story, was the takeaway of the interplay between the goddess and the woman. And I think where it comes through really powerfully is in the imagery that you depicted around the actual the sexual union of Mongand and Oki and how the sexual union and her thighs and him being between her thighs was a portal, was her offering him entry into the other world and offering through her sacred waters, the blessing of sovereignty and divine feminine that she offered. And I think that's really important for us as women to understand and as men to understand the sanctity of the sexual union and taking it away from what religion has indoctrinated us into believing, you know, it's it's sex is is dirty or it's it's for procreation only mm-hmm. or then into our modern culture that set through this proliferation of pornography that has been totally desanctified. But this idea that through this act that we have in our humanity, if the divine union is the divine feminine is beheld in the truth of who she is and the divine masculine is held in the truth of who he is. And if both understand the interplay within this and the, the fitta fuita, the interwoven nature of king becoming queen, or as you say so eloquently, all queen, all king, all hail the queen who made the king, who was made by the king. The king is born. The king making queen is born. Re Bonrian, Banish Rigi, Roga on Re, Roga on Bonrian. That's such a poetic way to describe what happens when we have a, a peak sexual experience that's done in, in divinity and in respect. 
And I just wondering if you have anything to say on that. I love that you saw the divine peak of that union. And I also want to name that I wanted to convey the terrible first kiss in that as well. Because there is that sense of saying, these were not two gorgeous lovers who came, you know, they were fated by the stars, perhaps, but this was sort of like an yeah. accidental meet in the grove. And, you know, you may insert accidental meet in any number of bars or pubs where first kisses have happened that have said, what am I doing? And then sometimes they are the great love of a lifetime. Yeah. And I realized as I was writing this, channeling through something bigger than myself, but it's also something exactly the size of my own experience, was that sense of, especially right now in, we live in a culture where we truly need consent and we needed to shift the way in which we've looked at male and female dynamics and knowing for so long, you know, we look back on stories we even love from the 90s and isn't it that sense of like, ooh, that's a little bit rapey because mm -hmm. there's that sense of, was she really willing? Well, she was willing after. And I wanted to sort of be in the tension of that, that said, this ended up being a great union that had its own problems at the end, but there was a deeply divine aspect to it. And at first she didn't know what a kiss was. She'd never even spoken to anyone before. This mm -hmm. happened so quickly for her. And she was this newborn. And she wasn't inside of her own body. And then something magical did happen. And that act of love, that act of, of sovereign unity transformed her. And I want to leave space for that in the sense that we don't necessarily come to our relationships fully sovereign. We yeah. learn in the process of them and in the mess of them, mm. especially in their beginnings. Mm. Oh, powerful. I love that's the kind of nuanced wisdom that we're starved of in the world. And that comes through in, in many aspects of this story. And I absolutely love it. And what comes through also in that idea is choice, is the idea of choice, of consent and choice. And you and Mary in Mary's retelling in, in a few episodes back spoke brilliantly about the idea of when Ireland, I suppose everywhere in patriarchy, there's the idea that it's it's the man who chooses the woman and there's a lot of, of healing that women need to do or want to do around the shadow that can emerge from ions of, of that issue in, in patriarchy. But I think it, this story brings something out that isn't brought out often enough in Irish mythology is that ultimately it's the goddess who chooses the king. And I love how you've explored the process of choice that Mungan underwent and the process of choice, not fully in her wisdom yet, that she was she was an infant Kylock, which I love the idea. I'm like, are we I'm an infant Kylock. I, I can <laughs> In that minute, I forgave myself of so many mistakes that I made. We have this highest potential and we have this destiny, but the process of our choices that we make. And I just love, again, that nuance of there's this Indian Danu who was 
put on the earth. Her destiny was to choose the king and choose the ruler. She made a few mistakes by her own admission in the process. But ultimately, that led to her wisdom, which he's imparting to us now in a very beautiful way, because it's not an all knowing wisdom. And it's not all, it's, it's like a wisdom where we can see ourselves through. And this idea of it's really important for the healing of, of women in our generation and after us and before us to flip that notion and, and to understand the effect that this notion of of waiting to be chosen and then the the hurt of not being chosen and the competition that arises between women for the, the need to be chosen to get ahead or to have a husband and then understanding how the, it this it was the sovereignty goddess in this wisdom tradition that had the ultimate choice and then the impact of not having wisdom having the power of choice but the need to have wisdom in that as well I think is powerful. And that her choice was still amongst a bunch of earthly men. And there was that sense of worthiness does not denote perfection. And realizing I'd written this story, I believe it was early in October. What I mean, this month has been, it's been everything and nothing and a a great sound of loss and distraction and sending my attention across the oceans and realizing that, especially so sitting here as an American, as we're naming this moment, it's November 7th as we record this, it actually is true astrological Samhain. We're here precisely between the equinox and the solstice. And as I've spoken many times with you, Laura, and on the show in general, there's this sense of the strange in-betweenness that is me as an American holding Irish stories from a distance. And now me as an American, even further away from what's happening in the Middle East right now, what's happening in Gaza right now. And the amount of flaw we are seeing in leadership right now and that yearning to say, well, maybe he's going to be good enough. And it's a bunch of he's in this situation. Mm-hmm. And maybe this one will be good enough, even though he's bad at this, that, that, and the other thing. Maybe it'll be okay. And really feeling the weight of the chains of that, especially in a country in America that prides itself on choice and is yet so terrible at it in so many ways. And wanting to keep us in the story where we could spool out with this forever. But I just want to really call us into that moment of what is it like? We are in this world of so many not worthy enough leaders and so many maybe they're good enough leaders and so much confusion that comes from that and that's that moment when I was really feeling like calling in Mungin's voice of saying well was he the best we could do was he the best Mm -hmm. I could do and Mm -hmm. I think we can do that in in long-term relationships and marriage all the way up to looking at our leaders of nations I certainly don't have an answer for it. It was really just being with, I used this phrase when I was talking to Jen Murphy a couple of weeks ago, it's the sacred discomfort of saying, this is what it is to be caught between the two worlds, whether Mm. it's the other world in this world, or whether it's whatever number of worlds you want to read onto it, as here we are in this 2023 moment of nations and conflict and trying to speak in the midst of it all. Yeah. 
your story was so rich and I was really grasping had I had an energy of grasping it was well there must be an answer in here as to some kind of wisdom for what's happening in the world at the moment and that hasn't become apparent to me yet but I don't I think in the same way as what you've said with Jen and in our one about you know it's okay maybe the mystery is meant to be the mystery for now but I think in putting our awareness on the nuance of this story Mm -hmm. and putting our awareness onto how the balance of power can get corrupted and the impact of lack of wisdom whether it's through the masculine energy or masculine archetypes or feminine archetypes the impact that that has and the importance of sovereignty and what true sovereignty is I think that's a real key that this story offers us and and offers exploration of you know sovereignty is a word that really has been corrupted in itself in the last number of years for far-right agendas and it's it's something that really is calling for our exploration and calling for our heart-led wisdom and analysis and understanding for and sovereignty is calling for a sovereign understanding of sovereignty and I think it's really amazing because this story and your story is centered in our center of sovereignty in Ireland which is the hill of Tara and amazingly the British Israelites dug up the hill of Tara in the 1800s looking for the Ark of Covenant because they believed that it was both the royal sovereign site of the British Empire and the royal site of a resuscitated Jerusalem of a new Israel. So this was before they had decided on Palestine to be their new home. But again, it just goes back to this corrupted notion of what sovereignty is Mm -hmm. and who are the people in power that are making the decisions for what sovereignty is, what the process of sovereignty should be in how we organize our civilization, and then who are those who are lesser than in our civilization and who are those that are in power and what rights do those who are in power impose on themselves and the world because of their distorted notions of sovereignty? And I just think it's really incredible that right at this time, this story of Mungan finds its way out into the collective unconscious when very few people have this understanding or have this knowledge of this part in our history where this very site was central to distorted power dynamics on on the earth and and how Ireland's destiny could have played out had some historical artefact been found when they dug it up. And people wonder why the Irish people are so empathetic to the Palestinian cause. Well, our histories are fita fuita and both of our nations have been at the receiving end of distorted notions of sovereignty. Mm. Oh, Laura, there's so much in what you just shared there. And I want to speak into what I feel I can speak into in the, with some level of 
authority, which is an interesting word that's connected to sovereignty. And I want to call both of them into question in that sense of, yes, we need authority as authors of our own lives and that ability to stand in a level of fact and truth and speak and say, I have the ability and the credibility to say these things. And there's also that sense of, of sovereignty itself and the ways in which, you know, I wrote a whole book on, on the subject for crying out loud. I don't think I would have the absolute temerity and the boldness to do it now. I'm very grateful for the, the foolish young Kalyak that I was in my 30s to have put out a book with the word sovereignty on the cover. And because the world has changed a great deal since I finished writing it in 2019. Mm-hmm. But all to say that when you start to unravel the concept of sovereignty and you keep pulling it back and back and back to that sense of, are we looking for some original story or original time? Again, to call the fact that I live in the United States of America on the the territory of the Lenape people. I live in a little town called Asopus, named after the Asopus people. And they have been were driven off the land in the 17th century. And so that sense of sovereignty for them is so deeply eroded, it feels as if it's in the mythic territory rather mm-hmm. than in the lived memory of folks, because you know, there certainly are indigenous people who've been able to have, if not uninterrupted, inhabitation of their land, the reservation system at least kept the people together and moved them to a new place. So looking and speaking about sovereignty through that lens and that sense of and this moment of saying, knowing there's so much going back and forth as to who was there first and whose land was it. There's a great paradox I feel my way into here in the sense that I'm someone who owns a home with a bit of property and paid a bank lots of money. So there's that sense of like, well, there's ownership of land. I've certainly bought into that system. And I certainly feel such an intense ancestral connection to your country, to to the land of Ireland, knowing that we are fighting wars across the planet in order to say who has rights to this bit of land. And then also having this recognition of of animism, of this sense of understanding that we live in a more than human world. And does the body of the earth exist in order to be cut up by individuals and individual groups of people to say, this is mine? And in certain ways, well, yes, of course, that's where our identities, our cultures, our mythologies are rooted into these places. So we can't pick or choose and say, hey, you folks over there, stop fighting over this bit of land. Can't you just Get along and see how it's how it all be grand, and that mm-hmm. immense inability that we have in so many other situations to say, well, wait a minute, what if somebody wanted to come and say, we should have this back, or you should give this up? Like, it, it starts to just really bend the mind in this way that can be fruitful creatively to keep following the story, but then there's moments you just like, wow, the whole human story us as children of men have managed to live so far out of balance with Mm -hmm. some, I suppose, imagined original intention that I was reaching to in this story that, Mm -hmm. and again, there's always that risk of falling into never, never land in the fairy world and assuming once upon a time, everything was good and pure and beautiful. And part of me believes that. And part of me says, but 
is that try you absolving yourself for doing the work in this moment? Mm-hmm. I think I just gave mm-hmm. you a sacred snarl there, sister. <laughs> you did. It's it's the double bind of our world right now. And I think there's a really golden gem in what you just said. And it's the question, what is the origin of our dysfunction in the world right now? And what is the origin of this notion that gives some people right to land over others? And I think mm-hmm. if we look at where the real hurt and the real violence and the real dysfunction is right now, it comes from the u- the misuse of story as a claim on land. So again, another synchronicity that the, the telling of the Danu story that you and I did a few podcasts ago, that was before the 7th of October when this round of violence started. But the reason for the telling of the story was to in some way enact healing from the harm that was done from the telling of the patriarchal interpretation of the book of Genesis. And amazingly, it's the book of Genesis that gives that one group of people on this earth right now think that they have claim and a right to murder other people deemed lesser than in their thousands because of this interpretation of a story from 3000 plus years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why th- there's something in our connection with the land that we're feeling right now is giving us imbus to to get this message across. That listen to the earth, listen to the power that our stories have. I mean, there's huge propaganda being used in the world right now to try and use fear to turn humans against humans. Mm-hmm. And that the idea of the power of story to justify murder and then the power of story to change the perception of the world to give consent to murder to genocide is really frightening and I think you you brought the notion of propaganda into your story of Mungand as well and, mm-hmm. and that was the, the the propagandized version of the fake fake new sovereignty goddess right. was probably what led Ultimately, like there was a, a period of peace, but ultimately the the foundations weren't solid because it was based on non-truths and on right. fake news. Right, right. Yeah. So just to, I always want to give credit to Gerard O'Cruley's book, The Book of the Kalyak, that gave me this whole idea, this little, it's a couple of pages in his very long book about this idea that the, that the Inel dynasty created the hag at the well story in order to secure Niles' kingship. And I took that little germ of a story and have really, really run with it. And I think that that is just, and to speak into your points around this way that, you know, the book of Genesis story has been twisted into what's become such a militaristic state. There's also many, many Jewish people who follow the book of Genesis and really are very faithful people who don't have that same connection to saying this is turning, that Zionism is part of our understanding of our entire faith path. You know, in the United States, Jewish voices for peace have been such a powerful voice here that say we're not doing it in that way. Yeah. Right. So the nuance around how 
stories are held by certain segments of a culture. I mean, again, I can speak here as an American in terms of the fact that, wow, there's a lot of different versions of America and a lot of different stories you can tell. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why we have such fights in our country right now over curricula and what stories are being permitted to be told to children about things like slavery and whether or not the version of America you want to tell does or does not include the fact that this nation was built on enslaved people's labor. That's it. That's it. I actually haven't thought of that. That's, yeah, so relevant. So I want to call this, it's so vital that we're in this moment of what's happening in the greater world. But I also want to call the story back to our bodies, because that's one of the reasons that I wrote this story. We were talking a little bit about the bad first kiss. And I think you all often also said, oh, I too am an infant Kalyak. But that idea of getting to play with age through this mm. story and that recognition of like, okay, here I am in the mid 40s moment. And there's a whole new recognition of what it is to be inside of this lovely, beautiful, changing skin of mine. And it's that sense of feeling in some ways more present in my early 20-something body than I am sometimes in my mid-40-something body, you know, the half a lifetime ago being. It was really interesting to me to recognize how much I needed to explore that way of, it's a bit of time magic, I suppose. It's a bit of looking at things as, as sovereign time, which is actually how I described it in my book. But the way of being able to inhabit the body, both when she feels old. When I'm 88, I will laugh at my 44-year-old self for thinking that, that I was old compared to my 22-year-old self. But there was just a real, I guess it felt like a, a strange blessing I was giving myself to allow that sense of aging backwards to be real on the page. Because I think that there's ways in which, well, that's certainly the anti-aging urge of our kind of toxic beauty culture. But I think there's also something kind of beautiful in it that we all look to, especially when we're in our most sensual bodies and sensual beings. For sure. And it's an interesting one. I actually just listened to Glennon Doyle this morning and they were speaking about the same thing. And, and one of them was in a doctor's office and there was these uh, advertisements for Botox and body sculpting, you know, in a gynecologist's office. And you're like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. our skin and our, our vulvas, they're like parts of our body that allow us to live. And you're imposing this notion of aesthetic beauty. Fine mm -hmm. if we want to opt in and, and, and that's our choice. But, you know, it's one of another feature of patriarchy is is this Peter Pan and this this need to or this expectation in society to to freeze time, to reject to all of the beauty that can come with aging. And I think that's one of the most powerful messages I picked up from your telling of Mongand and, and even the original telling is this notion of a king a man being worthy of kingship from his ability to behold the Kylock or to behold the hag in inverted commas. And he's given reward then, you know, she, she turns into a younger version and who can lead with him and can who can be his equal sovereign. But it's that idea 
of beholding the Kailak and being having the integrity as a man or as 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 anyone but in, in our stories it manifests as the, the divine masculine but ha- us and even our inner masculines like i reject i don't have the ability often to behold my own kailak mm-hmm. and so it's it's having the divine masculine in ourselves the divine masculines in our world move back into that idea of being able to behold it all and to youth has its benefits but it also has its disadvantages because youth very often doesn't come with wisdom and 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 all the rest so I think that's a really important part of this story and I think you brought it out so well because there's a number of times you refer to time moving backwards and you've laid that out in the structure of the story and yeah it's powerful Mm, thank you yeah I think that ends up being inherent in the sense that I didn't know I was writing a last sovereignty goddess story until the end. And it certainly, you know, it felt like I'm like, oh, God, there's a Star Wars element to this somehow. But, you know, I was raised by Princess Leia, so I think it was okay. But that sense of being able to name the last enables us to be able to look back on who was first and how things began. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there's something to be said there too for, you know, gosh, you, you see those sort of, they're bittersweet and they're sometimes a little corny, but those memes you see online about, you'll never know the last day you pick up your child. And, yeah. you know, sometimes that hits, and depending on the day that either hits you in the heart or it's like, oh, for crying out loud, I stopped picking up my kid because I had a really bad back from carrying two kids around for so many years. <laughs> so depending on my mood, but think there are those moments where it's the lasts that make the firsts take on a new light and we're able to well gain perspective and again to bring you back to that word you began with is it changes the aperture Mm, absolutely and it's it's diving right into the notion of birth death and rebirth and it's the last like mungan she died on the eve of Samhain Mm -hmm. that's so perfect because if we are to put any sort of meaning on the madness that's in the world right now, it is that this could possibly be the dying roars of the last cycle of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your story with Mungan and her dying on the eve of Samhain and her she's the last sovereignty goddess. Mm-hmm. Well, that equals that's the death that's needed for, for birth to come forth. And I think from the opportunity that your story allows us is the mind expansion and the deprogramming. I mean, I feel my mind being deprogrammed from all that patriarchy has done as I read your story. Mm. And in that deprogramming, it paves the way for the birth of what's new. What is going to replace patriarchy as we know it? I don't know yet, but the more we release the toxicity and release all the base that's taken up in our minds and our hearts from patriarchy we leave that void for all that's to birth and hopefully its highest potential because the gift we have is we have the gifts of all the mistakes that are being made we have it more documented now than ever before everything is unfolding in real time So at the level of wisdom that's coming through in the newer generation and the level of altruism and the level of heart, you know, the Greta Thunbergs, they know the urgency that we need to live 
I do have confidence and hope that everything that's happening now will be documented and will be used to consciously shape this new paradigm based on how not to live as we've lived in the last 2000 years. And pairing everything you're just saying and calling it through this Samhain lens, like this is the Mm -hmm. ultimate liminal time. It's the ultimate liminal time calendrically right now in this particular year in this run around the sun. But I think also we are living in a lifetime of liminal space Mm -hmm. and that what is being torn down, I think it was Regina DeBurka today posted, she's done the tarot in in Irish and she posted the tower today. And this Mm -hmm. sense of really being with the sense that we are in a tower moment and it may not just last a month or two. It's been a long process throughout our lifetimes and probably as long as our mother's lifetimes and will continue potentially through our children's lifetimes that Mm -hmm. 2000 years is immensely short in the, Mm -hmm. the length of this planet, but yet it's rather quite long considering how long we've been using civilization to change the very face of the earth. Exactly. And, you know, as we're sort of landing our conversation here with this really contemplation of Samhain and really appreciate your sort of sense that this story imagines what it is to live in a post-patriarchal age, I certainly have no concept of what that looks like either. And if anything, I'm just immensely aware of the ways in which I'm still holding on with my fingernails on one hand and pushing it away with the other. And I feel like that may be so much of the modern dilemma in this moment. We've certainly talked about those paradoxes a lot in our conversation. But I hope that with this story, it doesn't make a lot of sense why women in the rabble celebrate Mungin on Samhain Eve and why it becomes Mungin's feast. In the original story, it's sort of like, well, she poisons her brother and poisons herself and falls down dead. And then everybody celebrates her afterward. And that Mm -hmm. was my real yearning with this story and why I began with the ending to say, why did they celebrate her? What is it that we don't really know about Mm -hmm. her? Mm -hmm. And again, that calls us back to the conversations you and I have had about the mystery that says, maybe we have the beginning of the beginning of understanding what was being celebrated when it comes to that one particular mythological figure. Yeah. But it seems to speak to this moment in general as we're in such beauty and possibility and also dismantling and uncertainty. Mm. And there won't be a perspective on exactly what we're tearing down or what we're celebrating until sometime later. Mm. And I think the opportunity is now and now is the time where we can sow the seed because this is Samhain, this is the liminal space between what's dying and what's being born. So the more consciously we can sow the seed. And I think Mungin's archetype, it gives us huge power to sow a seed. And as you said in the end of, of your story, that it was at Samhain when women and the rabble, the crowd, make petitions to Mungin. So I think, you know, and I would invite all of your listeners right now 
to make a petition to Mumund. Um, she's she's asking, she's calling us to make our petitions to her. And, and as helpless as we all feel, we can use this time of liminal power and mystery and not knowing to make a petition for a better world, not to put our prescription on what that better world is because we don't know yet, but to make the petition that the the highest of humanity will present itself and that humanity can find its way back to Mother Earth, can find its way back to the original womb of Danu and to find its way back to the original meaning of sovereignty. And the more we connect with the land, if people can visit Tara in their imagination, in their bodies, and make that petition for humanity to find its way to its highest potential. I think doing that at this time offers us a window into a healed world. Thank you, Laura. What a beautiful place to call us to as at the as we conclude this story to come back to a sacred patch of the earth. Whether we travel in our minds or can travel there with our own two feet. And that memory that our earth is sacred, even as our the wars are waged upon her and in her name. Mm. She is larger than us all and holds us all. She Thank does. you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people.